Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. conversation on climate change, terms like 1.5 degrees versus 2 degrees of change, multinational agreements with treaties and acronyms for government agencies and cap and trade can all sound very confusing. Don't worry, the Extra Environmentalist is here for you to sort it all out. In today's show, we send our trusty correspondent out into the field to discover just what's happening in the world of climate change and attempt to explain it in terms that even I can understand. That's right, Seth. We have our correspondent, Mark Dixon, from the Northeast U.S., who went over to the Paris COP21 climate conference back in December of 2015. And when Mark was there, he recorded segments with the members on the ground, the activists, the scientists, the politicians. He spoke with Kevin Anderson, a climate scientist who is very critical of the way a lot of the mainstream climate models depict how we can get to lower amounts of global warming in the future and we're going to hear that interview today that mark recorded while he was in paris at the conference and we're also going to hear mark's reflections on what all of these numbers and targets and everything really mean as well as what it was like to be at one of the largest gatherings of dignitaries of global leaders uh, really in world history talk about the challenge of limiting future climate change so that humans can still live on this planet in the future. It was so great to have Mark out in the field as an extra environmentalist correspondent at this fantastic event. We're here to help you understand just what's happening in the world of climate change, science, and policy. This is the Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. Enjoy episode number 93. So, Mark, what are these COP meetings? Like, what makes them a critical role of the process of reaching a global agreement on climate change and reducing CO2 emissions? It seems to be an emergence from the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, where they decided to 
gather a conference of parties. So gather a subset of United Nations groups to talk about solutions on climate change and to actually try to build out solutions on climate change agreed to on a, on a grand international level. And so the UNFCCC basically said, we're going to do something about climate change. And they called it the Conference of Parties. I think it's kind of the most boring name they ever could. They don't even call it the Conference of Parties about climate change. It's just <laughs> Conference of Parties. And then 21 is just the number of annual events that they've held around Conference of Parties. And I feel like it's actually, it's more of a label of how many times they failed to solve the climate problem. And here they are at COP21 after, you know, a lot of people widely regarding COP15 in Copenhagen as a failure. And even COP21, you know, it was not a kind of a unilateral success. There were lots of naysayers and people who felt like it was a fraud and also that it's just worthless talk. But I think it did succeed on many levels, and we can talk about those more further on. But on the whole, it's basically a gathering of nations to get their act together on climate change. And their progress so far has been, I feel, woefully inadequate. And so what made this meeting, the 21st meeting of the Conference of Parties, different from the previous 20? The reason you were saying you wanted to go is because you felt this was a pivotal moment in the future of civilization and the future of climate change as a problem. Why was COP21 different? Yeah, yeah. So a variety of reasons. It seemed that back at COP15 in Copenhagen, you know, they emerged from that conference thinking, oh, it was a failure. They didn't meet these goals. They did lay some certain amounts of technological, or I should say, at Copenhagen, they laid some foundation work for some future progress. But largely at Copenhagen, it seemed like the primary declaration was, well, we didn't wrap it up this time. So we're going to punt to COP21 for the next time when we are going to even try for an agreement that will then not go into place until 2020. And when I heard that news, I just thought, oh my gosh, we don't have that much time. My hair is on fire already back in 2009. If they don't get their act together by COP21, then we're really doomed, is basically what I thought at the, at the end of COP15. So there was, it's the sort of this time-based uniqueness where they literally punted six years into the future for the next attempt. And I thought that was amazingly... <laughs> Uh, pathetic, brazen, brash. But when I thought that 2009 was too late, you know, I really wanted to see what happened in 2015. So that was one element, was the time-based difference. Things are way more urgent now. The scientific knowledge about climate change is way more solid, cause for much more alarm. And they also put in place some functional differences or some logistical differences as well that I thought were were unique and vital to a more successful outcome at COP21. One of those is called an INDC concept. It's an intended nationally determined contribution. And it's basically a pre-negotiation statement of every nation, I'd say virtually every nation that showed up at COP21 came with a pre-negotiation, a statement that said, we are going to cut our emissions X amount by this date in time. And it allowed for immediate progress at COP21 in a way that wasn't possible in previous arrangements. Nations basically knew what other nations were going to do before they arrived. And so the negotiation that took place actually at COP21 was kind of like fine-tuning the details instead of 
throwing their cards on the table at the last second with these big variables and not even knowing scientifically what the net result was of all of those different contributions. These INDCs allowed nations to pre-negotiate and for the United Nations to summarize the net result of those negotiated positions. And there were a couple different groups that came forward with, with sort of assessments. The United Nations came up with an assessment. They said, you know, our best understanding is that all these INDCs aggregate to about 2.7 C above pre-industrial levels. Now, there was another group that I was able to actually interview in the process of attending COP21, the Climate Interactive Group. And they said that their assessment of the INDCs was that it came closer to 3.5 C above pre-industrial levels. Both of those numbers, though, are way above the kind of preliminary target of 2 degrees C and way above the stretch goal of 1.5 C above pre-industrial levels. So basically everybody arrived at COP21 with an INDC aggregate number of between 2.7 and 3.5, depending on how you count. And that was not enough. That was clear. And so that led to a variety of other logistical mechanisms, like a ratchet mechanism, where they said, well, if we can't reach the goal, we need to right when we arrive at COP21, or even once we've signed it, then we need to figure out a mechanism by which we can ratchet down our emissions over time and hold each other accountable for that. So the ratchet was a an offshoot of an insufficient INDC target. But the INDCs, the main benefit of INDCs is that they got almost every nation on earth to think about climate change, in some cases, for the very first time in a meaningful international way. And that was a profound difference with other COP events. So the INDC was a big one. Other big changes from other COP agreements or other COP events included a huge buildup of media. Basically, there was a media frenzy uh, leading up to COP21. And I think it was primarily precipitated by the head of the, I think it was the UNFCCC, Christiana Figueres. She traveled around the whole world and basically got everybody to make major statements on climate change. I don't know exactly what happened behind closed doors, but from the parade of people making announcements, I suspect that she was very busy behind the scenes. So we saw unprecedented statements from the Pope, from President Obama, from major U.S. and international banks, international oil companies, whole cities, healthcare organizations, major, major companies, just all sorts of different companies all around the world were making announcements. There was even an announcement about divestment of money from fossil fuel investments. And I think at COP21, they announced $3.4 trillion has been divested to date from some of the largest pools of money on earth. So they basically took away the argument that this is not a mainstream movement. This is not a mainstream concept of addressing climate change. No, everybody is talking about it. Everybody's going to do something about it. And there's no hiding from this shift in how we get our energy and how we run the world and how much carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases. Another big difference was that the United States and China came up with a bilateral agreement and the U.S. and India came up with some kind of, I don't know how strong an agreement it was, but an understanding about carbon emissions and CO2 related emissions. And without the U.S. and China having at least some kind of of agreement, no matter what you get out of COP21, it's kind of 
moot or pointless. So to get a pre-agreement from the U.S., China, and India was a huge difference in the months leading up to COP21. And the other major difference was that you had huge turnout. I think around 150 world leaders turned out at this event at the beginning of COP21. They all paraded on TV and gave speeches endorsing you know, the goals of COP21 and saying we need to have a strong agreement and all this stuff. And I thought it was actually really interesting. I wouldn't have known if I hadn't actually been there, but I was listening to all these speeches from leader after leader after leader after leader and, you know, just trying to get a sense of are these just words or are these, you know, how can I read the tea leaves around these events? And I paid close attention in particular to President Obama's speech. It was my understanding that they had about two to three minutes because they had 150 leaders and they had to just run through them all two to three minutes to make their little climate speech. And I swear, I, I think Obama must have talked for at least 10, maybe more minutes. And I kept hearing these little buzzes in the background. And those were those were the, the timer buzzes. And they kept buzzing him over and over and over again. <laughs> um, but he just blasted right through all the time limits. So, you know, while he may be constrained, and I feel like a lot of the world leaders and a lot of the negotiators, they're all constrained by their job circumstances and by their local politics circumstances, their local political circumstances in what they can do. They can't just come and say, we're gonna solve it tomorrow and we're gonna stop off fossil fuels today. I don't think that they can say that, but they can give certain signs around the edges and I feel like blowing away your time limit for many, many times in a row is one way that a world leader can make a statement stronger than just fit my words in a certain slot and hope that that does the job. So that was that was sort of a good sign that I felt like Obama was kind of going outside some boundaries that he was given to to make a more concerted effort to express his concern for climate change and his hope for action. So you were there at the meeting recording interviews, taking in the observations as like you say, a citizen journalist, and observing what was going on for your local community and for the world. And so what we wanted to do in this episode was take some of the material you recorded and reflect on what the meaning of these large assemblies of world leaders means for climate change, what is the culture like there, how are they constrained, as you were just saying, and what's really the meaning of these global agreements. So those are the things we're going to discuss. So you recorded an interview with Kevin Anderson, a climate scientist who is very critical of the way that all of the temperature targets and all of the future emissions scenarios are developed because of the way that they frame you know, the potential for carbon capture sequestration and low emissions technology. Now, could you set up a little bit about the interview that we're going to listen to with Kevin Anderson? Sure, yeah. In my preparation for COP21, I was doing a whole bunch of research on all the climate research that I could find. And one of the climate researchers that I found had particularly compelling information available online on YouTube in particular was Kevin Anderson. And he would split hairs that I didn't know you could split in understanding the nuance around carbon emissions reductions, carbon emissions reductions in the context of carbon sequestration technology, in the context of arable land, in the context of farming emissions of methane and or CO2 and things like that. He really brought my understanding of climate science and the nuances around how you assess 
carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions in general to a new level. So I was kind of a, a bit of a fan of his work and I made a point to try to find him during COP21 and I finally got a hold of him towards the end of the event, which was great because he was able to then reflect on the sort of late breaking news in, in COP21 and all the most important news came right at the end. So I was able to talk to him as we were hearing language of 1.5C above pre-industrial levels as a stretch goal emerge in the language of the COP21 draft agreement. So he's speaking to not the final agreement, but the sort of day or so before the final agreement emerged. And really, I feel like Kevin Anderson tells it like it is, draws his information from robust science, and also has a relatively pessimistic view of, can we hit 1.5C? Can we even hit 2C above pre-industrial levels of warming? But I think that he has a message that we need to really hear if we want to begin to take meaningful steps to address the climate problem. We will jump into the interview with Kevin Anderson now. So I'm here talking to Kevin Anderson. You are a research scientist. Well, I certainly research. Um, actually, I'm originally a mechanical engineer, but I've been working on climate science and climate change now for the last 20 years. I saw you this morning talking to a crowd of people who are just mobbing you for information about what is happening with this two degree, maybe 1.5C shift in the COP agreement text here on Friday, the last day officially of COP21. Can you give me a little, a little rundown of sort of how 1.5 emerged over the last two weeks as an option? Well, the concern about climate change relates to the impacts that we see from climate change. So although we, we focus on temperatures, really those temperatures there are, are a proxy for the impacts that we will see. And what a lot of the poorer parts of the world, particularly those living in climatically vulnerable parts of the Southern Hemisphere, and what they're concerned about is, well, actually impacts in the one and one and a half degree C look very severe. Those particular communities have had nothing to do with the problem. Their emissions have been incredibly low. So they, they come here with a very strong moral argument that can be also backed up with the science relating to the impact, saying that, well, you know, two degrees C is far too challenging for us. It is not appropriate for our communities. In fact, many of our communities will not survive at two degrees centigrade. And a lot of, lot of them will also struggle at one and a half. So they are then saying that we need to be aiming for one and a half, that we think we can, you know, hopefully most of us or some of us can just get by with one and a half, but anything higher than that, and that will be so devastating to our communities that we'll, you know, there will be virtually unlivable places to be. And so they've had a strong scientific and moral case, and that I think has influenced the debate here. So I think that's probably how it got incorporated into the current text, though I have to add that you know, the, the accompanying text in terms of well, what we're going to try to do in terms of reducing our emissions is completely inconsistent, or at least there's nothing there of any substance to show what we would need to do to deliver 1.5 degrees. So in some ways you could say that they have created the most ambitious text possible because they've created the lowest sort of level of mechanism to achieve perhaps the highest level of commitment that they might have signed up to at this conference. Yes, that's one way of putting it. It's super just a, ambitious. Yeah, super ambitious. I mean, there's just an enormous disconnect between the, the aspirations that are put in there, the headline aspirations of 1.5 or well below 2 degrees centigrade, and then the rest of the text, which is completely empty of anything substantial in terms of what would be needed to be done to deliver the sort of action, the reductions in carbon dioxide emissions in line with the carbon budgets for 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade. So there is just one enormous disconnect between the two. So this goal was created by people who all pretty much flew in, except you, who took the train in from England? Or uh, yes, from the UK, yes, yeah, okay. from England. What are the politicians thinking if they're thinking, you know, yeah, we're going to do 1.5, but 
and then their whole economy is sort of embedded in fossil fuel burning. Mm. What's going on in their heads? Well, I'm not sure they're thinking they're going to deliver 1.5. I mean, I think 1.5 for many of the people here is, is a, a bit of political rhetoric of grandstanding. I don't think that many of the politicians here think that they're anyway going to deliver 1.5. I think many of the politicians here, and certainly many of the scientists, don't think they're going to deliver 2 degrees C, but they're, they're not prepared to make those sorts of statements publicly. And so we have this grandstanding position of 1.5 degrees C, which I don't think, I would say from the science, is simply not viable unless you believe that some form of negative emission technology can suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the future. Um, and even for two degrees C, I think the challenges are huge and again, way beyond anything that is discussed within the text. So you're saying that you think that 1.5 C is not really viable unless you have some kind of magical carbon sucking thing that sucks carbon magically out of the atmosphere? I would say more than just think that. I think you can just demonstrate it very clearly. If you take the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the carbon budgets they've given for the different probabilities of 1.5 degrees C, you relate those to our current levels of emissions, there is no way you could deliver on those sorts of carbon budgets. So I don't think it's in any way scientifically viable unless you hope in the future you can, you can absorb the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in very large quantities. But the other thing you have to be aware of that they are assuming in that that there won't be a whole set of these positive feedbacks that make the situation worse in the meantime. So if we're relying on sucking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in 2050 to 2070, which is what's embedded in a lot of the models, then the interim period our emissions keep going up or at least they're not coming down, then we will be likely triggering a whole suite of positive feedbacks that may make the situation much worse, such as the one that we hear about at the moment is the, is the melting of the permafrost and the increased emissions of methane into the atmosphere. Yes, yeah. Now you mentioned something that I haven't heard talked about a lot here at COP, but I really focused in on this partly because I've been watching what you talk about and other people talk about who are not at COP, talking about the percentage of probability. And very often they just say, well, it's likely. Can you elaborate on how important the probability of the targets is to this COP process? Okay, the, the probability is really important. It sounds like a, a sort of geeky, nuanced issue, but actually the probability changes the size of the carbon budget. In other words, how much carbon we can put into the atmosphere, and that has fundamental repercussions for policies and whether you can, for instance, expand your airports, grow your road network, what you have to do with your power stations. So it has real-world implications if we were serious about the carbon budgets. And we have to bear in mind the carbon budgets are scientifically credible. They are the really, very clearly comes out of the science is the carbon budget, the total amount of carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere that relates to the temperature. So they are very important. Okay. Generally, the IPCC has had three principal sets of probabilities. The first one of these they call likely, in other words, a 33% chance of exceeding two degrees centigrade, for instance, which is a 67% chance of staying below. Then a much easier to understand one, a 50-50, so there's a 50% chance of going above or 50% chance of staying below. And then the unlikely one, which is a 33% chance of staying below or a 67% chance of exceeding. So these these three probabilities, and each one has its own carbon budget with it, and they vary very significantly, the size of the carbon budgets for those probabilities. So although it sounds like a geeky, nuanced issue. Actually, it's really important. So when policymakers say we want a likely chance of staying below two degrees centigrade, then they are talking about a particular carbon budget. And when they say we are happy with a, only a low chance of, of, of two degrees centigrade, then they are talking about a different carbon budget. And that level of clarity, again, is not within the text, but it's very clearly laid out within the synthesis report from the IPCC. And indeed, it's in the, it's in the summary for policymakers report in a very clear table.
So you said that there isn't a clear reference to that in the current COP working agreement. Is that right? Not only is no reference to probabilities, there's no reference to carbon budgets. There's almost no reference to science in the current COP text. There are 27 pages that make almost no reference to science within it. This is why I have made the comment, you know, having carefully thought it through, that it is at the moment, the, the latest version we have, and we have of course 24 hours left really, or thereabouts, and the latest version is probably weaker than the Copenhagen Accord in 2009. And a lot of people have said that was actually a failure. And if you look at the Copenhagen Accord, and although it wasn't legally binding, most countries signed up to the accord. The accord said to take action to stay below 2 degrees centigrade, consistent with science and on the basis of equity. And at least it included very clearly in the language, consistent with science. I mean, that language is not in the current text. Science is hardly referenced, full reference to the word science, and a few more to the word scientific in the whole 27 pages of text. There's more reference to economics and economic than there is to science within the text. So if it was a vehicle, they would have maybe swapped out a four-door sedan for like a little two-seater that was pretty crummy, but they put some fancy 1.5 degree fins on the back or something to make it look a little prettier, but it's a less powerful machine. That's certainly one way of looking at it. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Some go faster stripes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go faster stripes. Perfect. That's a much better analogy, I think. It's hard for me to understand or to kind of glean much from the text as it comes out, you know, every couple of days when there's no percentage chances built into it. I'm like, well, so... But it's politics, so how good is a percentage from a politician anyways? Well, I think they can refer to the percentages from the IPCC. I mean, to me, there should be a strong scientific theme that runs through it. I mean, obviously, it's not all about science. There's a lot of it about politics, a lot about social science, a lot about economics, you know, a lot about humanity in there. That all needs to be embedded in there as well. But if we are serious about two degrees C temperature rise, which relates to a suite of impacts that people think are dangerous, or one and a half degrees C, then the science tells us what we need to do in terms of the scale of reductions. And then it's up to the political framework to say, well, how are we going to deliver that? That is the role of the politics and the engineers and so forth. But the science gives a very clear indication a very clear uh, approach for assessing the validity of the different policy mechanisms, but that has been completely removed from the text as it is now. So the only real numbers we get in the text at the moment, I mean, there are one or two others, but essentially 1.5 degrees C, 2 degrees centigrade, and some page numbers. And there's virtually no reference to anything scientifically robust within the whole 27 pages of text. Did you search through keywords, like, of numbers? We did do a keyword search for for some particular words. I I don't think fossil fuels is in there, for instance. Decarbonisation, I don't think, is in there. So we looked at the word science, looked at the word economics. So a lot of words are not in there. Um, Carbon budget is not in there anywhere. And although carbon budgets are the principal significant output in terms of the policy world from the IPCC process, they're not referred to at all within the uh, 27 pages of text. Wow. Well, one of the things that people always ask me after I've given a presentation about upcoming COP21 agreement is, well, they see the numbers and they see how, how much CO2 is in the atmosphere and they see the percentage likelihood of things. The people in the audience often ask me, well, it looks like we need to do some major carbon sequestration or geoengineering. What are our options there? Can you speak to that natural response that people have when they see the dire numbers, when they see the dire climate predictions Mm. and they go right to well is there a techno fix and how reliable is it and will my children hate me if we invoke it i can understand why people when i say people what we mean are people like us the high emitters who are not really prepared to make significant changes to how we live our lives and therefore because we're not prepared to make those changes we even if it's implicitly we then err towards the side of is there some technology some bit of magic out there in the future that can mean that I can carry on doing what I'm doing today and we can still bring carbon dioxide emissions down so I can still look at my child in their eyes during breakfast and we have a suite of technologies that are very all highly speculative 
that have been embedded now in, in a lot of these what are called integrated assessment models. These are the major models that advise policymakers that combine science with economics and politics and behavior. Yeah. These models embed within them very large levels of these negative emission technologies that they normally would suggest come into fruition, start to work from 2050 onwards. There are different techniques that they use, but primarily they're using one called BECS, which is Biomass Energy Carbon Capture and Storage, which, just yeah. to touch on what that means, that means basically growing lots of plant material, trees or other plant material, harvesting it, turning it into, say, into pellets for combustion, shipping it around the world, putting it into power stations, capturing the carbon dioxide that comes up from the power station, sequestering the carbon dioxide, or liquefying it, then sequestering it, holding it somewhere very deep underground for the next few thousand years. So as the plants grow, they absorb carbon dioxide, and as we burn the plants, we capture that carbon dioxide and hold it underground for a few thousand years. So in, in theory, at least, you can see with the textbook that that looks like, oh, well, that could absorb some carbon dioxide. It could work. It's a Rube Goldberg machine of carbon dioxide. Right? It is. Dr. Strangelove, I always like to think okay, of it as. Yeah. But then you start to look, well, what do the numbers look like? We're currently emitting 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year, which, well, don't worry, people okay. may, that may mean nothing to most people. But we liquefy but, it, and then it's smaller. Yeah, well, at the moment, if you, look at, if you wanted to capture 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide, so less than a third of our current emissions, you would need to plant out somewhere the size of India more than the size of India. We need to what out the size of You'd India? You'd have to plant somewhere the size of India oh. to grow the biomass to sequester it. Oh. So the levels of that you would require, that's for 10 billion tons. Okay. And so we're emitting 36 billion tons a year. Well, no wonder India is so concerned about this 1.5 agreement. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, and they use that as an example, but I don't think they're planning to just plant in India. In fact, of really, course. when you look at it, I don't think they've really thought through where these things would be planted in any significant detail. And the other part that goes with it is that at the same time as we're going to use this BEX technology, aviation sector thinks it's going to use biomass for flying their planes. The shipping sector thinks it's going to use biomass for, for powering its ships. The chemical industry expects to use biomass for chemical feedstock, and we expect to feed 9 billion people on the planet at the same time. Eating more meat. Well, actually, some are eating more meat. It's interesting at the moment. China's got massive increase in meat consumption as its economy grows. India hasn't. So there are big cultural dimensions. Certainly. So India's interesting that as its economy grows, they're not apparently increasing the level of meat consumption. Fascinating. So there are big cultural elements around meat consumption. But you put all of this together and it simply looks unrealistic. So you then come back to the point, if, if you're the parent looking at your child, yeah. that means I've got to make dramatic reductions in how I live my life if I'm going to bequeath to you, if we're going to hand over to you yeah. uh, a planet worth living on. So you, you have to look them in the eye then and say, you know what? We shouldn't have had you. Uh, well, we shouldn't have had us, probably. Right? <laughs> Our parents shouldn't have had us would have been a better option. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think we then have to sort of turn around and say, well, what is it we can do immediately? I mean, there are things we can do immediately to reduce our emissions at the high emitting group within the wealthy parts of the world. Look at how we live our lives. And, you know, I think this, yeah, and I think the idea that we've normalized incredibly high energy consumption. You just think if we go to the shops, seven kilometers or five miles down the road, we put our 70 to 90 kilograms of flesh in one and a half thousand kilograms of metal, we then drive it seven kilometers away, we pick up um, another 10 kilograms of groceries, and then we drive back in another 1,500 kilograms of car. Yeah, there is something almost unworldly about a world that we have normalized that allows us to do that sort of thing. And, we, you know, and we, we fly around the world at the drop of a hat. People like us fly around the world. I mean, most, of course, the world's population do not. But the wealthy of us tend to have these very high carbon emission lifestyles. And I think one thing that's quite telling is this idea that the top 1% of emitters in the US emit about 2,500 times more carbon dioxide than the bottom 1% globally yeah, per person. So I think there are some very, very significant stats that help us understand how important we are to this climate change agenda, which is high emitting individuals. Yeah, yeah. Oof. And it's not, it's, I mean, people say, do the emissions really matter? And are the emissions by the train worse or better? That misunderstands the problem that we face. Um, the, you know, the problem that we're actually facing 
is that we need to make significant changes into our routines and our habits about how we do what we do. So my flying doesn't make so much difference, but then I argue with other academics, and we've got now quite a reasonable cohort of academics who are starting now to not to fly. There's a website being opened in the States looking at less flying. We are arguing to our research councils who fund our research to say, you need to think about the carbon footprint of the research that you fund. So by starting off as an individual, you can catalyze a movement that brings about other forms of change making that gesture in terms of flying, that's what we're trying to do. And now, now there's quite a big cohort of people, academics, across the globe, who actually are seriously questioning whether in fact we should be jumping on a plane to carry out our climate change research. Yeah. We're yeah. changing the experiment by doing it. Yeah. Now, there are so many businesses at this COP event, and also at events all around COP, and there's, there's almost like a governmental celebration of the amount that business has gotten into this climate change thing, and they're even calling for emissions reductions more than what the governments are calling for. Do you have any reflections on what is the role of good or bad or ugly of business in this equation? I think it's hard to sort of put all business together in, in one group here. I mean, I think for the traditional oil companies, most of whom are very reluctant to move away from what they do, which is supply oil, they don't even see themselves as energy companies. They are hydrocarbon supplying companies. I think for those companies, the climate change agenda is hugely challenging. But for a lot of other companies, and there are many things that they can do, they're more entrepreneurial, they're more creative in their thinking. So I think there's a lot that business can offer. But having said that, it's not business in isolation. Businesses and government and civil society, we all live on the same planet. We need to be working in some sort of coordinated fashion. So it's the role of government to set up the umbrella policies so that business can operate and deliver whatever the services may be, but within the appropriate carbon budget. And it also provides a, an easier level of playing field. I mean, I think we have to not overplay that, but some sort of level of playing field for them to compete with other companies, if that's the sort of mechanism that we have. So I think businesses have a really important role to play, but let's not think of them as something as separate to the rest of the negotiations. They are, we are all in partnership. On this. I want to get a little bit of a sense from you about James Hansen has called two degrees catastrophic as a target and he says you know we shouldn't exceed 1c at least over the long term that yeah. anything over 1c could lead to other additional tipping points and things like that. Yes yeah. People are looking for you know in some ways scientists at this point to guide them through the emotional response to well is it catastrophe or ridiculous change that I can't handle? How do you internalize the sort of magnitude of the gap between where we are and where we need to be. Yeah, okay. Well, first, when Hansen's talking about one degrees, he's talking about, say, about the longer term. So his concern, I mean, firstly, he doesn't want emissions to go up you know, much more than they are now, and, and hence temperature. But he's saying that in the end, even one degree C looks risky, or certainly one and a half to two is very risky. Yeah. And actually, a lot of scientists will say that. As you head forward, I mean, even at one and a half to two degrees C, I think most glaciologists now are saying that you're going to melt Greenland. Now, that's not going to melt in this century, at least not any significant proportion of it. But that doesn't mean that you're going to lock that in over the, the next quite a number of centuries. That's seven meters of sea level rise. Do we think it's appropriate that in what is 50 to so years of burning carbon dioxide at a significant level, we have changed? in a sense we change the physical makeup of our own planet that's why some people call it the anthropocene you know we are like the meteorite that hit the earth we are like that but we are conscious we don't have much of a conscience we are conscious we are knowledgeable about what we are doing and so i think hansen's sort of raising these sort of fundamental issues that we are changing the structure the makeup the physical makeup of our own planet in ways that would be incredibly detrimental not just to us humans and modern society but also to ecosystems and to the way the planet evolves so how do you reconcile this with and you know, if you like feeling upbeat and positive. I never feel upbeat and positive, but my view is that whilst I think there is a thin thread of hope remaining, it is incumbent on people like me to try to, to stretch that as, as far as possible, to make it as, as viable as possible. I, if you ask me, do I think we'll succeed? No, I think we will fail. I think we'll like very likely ahead for three or four degrees C temperature rise. I think the repercussions of that will be dire for other ecosystems, but particularly for modern communities. I think we'll see lots of military tension and lots of things that will be incredibly detrimental to us as a species, to us as humanity. 
Nevertheless, I think there's a very thin chance that we can avoid that. And whilst that thin chance remains, I'll put my efforts in that direction. Once it's gone, I'm going to spend my time rock climbing and cycling. There it is. You have highlighted in some of your lectures that there's sort of a base level of carbon dioxide emissions that if we remove, then we sort of dig into people's ability to provide fundamentals like food and water and basic like infrastructure like goes away if we drop below a certain level of carbon dioxide. It's more related to the other greenhouse gases. Oh, okay. So, and that's why a lot of us are arguing. In fact, you hear this very commonly. We need zero carbon energy. And that's because when you look at things like agriculture, you cannot have zero greenhouse gas emission in agriculture. If you go to a field and you plough the field, you'll release some methane into the atmosphere. If you're using any nitrogen-based fertiliser, you'll have some NOx emissions. So you are going to have greenhouse gas emissions just from feeding people on the planet. Now, you can make those less, but you cannot eliminate them. But you can eliminate them from energy. So if we're serious about trying to hold a stable temperature, we need the energy emissions down to zero, and we need the other GHGs, greenhouse gases, as low as possible. But they will not be reduced to zero whilst we're on the planet. Are those considerations taken into account in the IPCC numbers, the latest report? They are indeed, yes. So when you see the carbon dioxide budgets, within those budgets, there are sets of assumptions about what happens to the non-greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now, what do you think is the percent chance probability that in the next software release of Elon Musk's Tesla car software, yeah. that he's going to have a feature that actually withdraws carbon dioxide instead of just using electricity? Sucks it out from the car. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Elon Musk has been solving all of our problems already so far. Well, has he been think? solving them? Um, well, no, no. <laughs> now, I'm, I think with most of these issues, you go back to the, uh, I like a bit of thermodynamics. Look at the issues of entropy. Yeah, whatever wonderful things we do in one place with a gizmo, it usually means that somewhere else we've had to do some other activity, which means we've, we've made the situation worse. So there are things that, as an engineer, there are wonderful things we can do with engineering. The time frame we have, we cannot deliver engineering quickly enough to solve those problems. And a lot of the big engineering solutions that we have actually somewhere else in the world are making the situation worse. So often you require lots more energy for doing something. So when people talk about sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, they often, some of the techniques there, I require huge amounts of renewable energy to do that. So we don't have that renewable energy, so what else you could you use? Well, you could use coal, you could use gas, or you could use oil. So you extract these things, you burn them, you put CO2 in the atmosphere to allow you to the ability to suck CO2 out somewhere else in the, in the globe. So we have to be very careful of these technical solutions as to how that they, they, you know, the system implications of these sort of technology put forward. That's not to say we shouldn't be looking at batteries. And if we can find good ways of sucking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, great, let's, let's try and pursue them. But let's develop our policies assuming they do not work. Mm. Any last remarks? If we're serious about avoiding any form of any framing of dangerous climate change, then Paris is not the end game. Very clearly going by the current text, which certainly will not make, become much more stringent by tomorrow, but let's hope it does, but very, very unlikely to. Paris will certainly not be the end game, but if we do not do something within the following year to two years, then that will be the end of two degrees C. 1.5 degrees C, as I say scientifically, I think is not viable. Two degrees C will go in the next few years. So if we're going to review in 2020, and to 2023, which I think is what's embedded in the text, then that would be too late, in my view, for two degrees centigrade, unless we are prepared to believe in negative emissions, saving the day in 2050. Wow. So we need dramatic, radical reductions in our emissions now, and therefore, I agree with Johan Rockström when he was making the point that we need to revisit the INDCs robustly within two years. Well, thank you very much for, for your time. And you. For Action Environmentalist, this is Mark Dixon at COP21. You may have heard officials from almost every nation on Earth are heading to Paris to tackle the problem of climate change. 
Their goal is a plan to finally help humanity reduce its carbon footprint. If this sounds familiar, it's because they've tried before. There was Lima, Warsaw, Doha, Durban, Cancun, Copenhagen, a lot of meetings. The United Nations effort to address the human component of global warming might look pretty complex to some, so it might help to think about the process simply as a bus. This is the bus that can deliver the world from climate change. This climate-saving bus has come many miles since that first meeting years ago. But somewhere along the way, it kind of got stuck. The road to solving climate change is a tough one. In the past, the strategy was to find a tow truck. This would be the agreement or global policy that would fix the climate problem. It shows up, does its job, and we're on the road again. But there was a catch. Who exactly was going to be in charge of this tow truck for when it shows up and exactly what it does? Since negotiators could never agree on the final details of this solution in advance, this tow truck never stuck around. But this time in Paris, there's a new plan. Countries of the world are lining up behind the bus and pushing as hard as they can. Each country is offering its own plan to help reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. And there are other factors. Clean energy prices are plummeting. Extreme weather events are costing countries big money. And popular opinion is shifting, with more people demanding action. Now with everyone pushing in the same direction, the climate bus can get moving as the road to Paris brings the world closer to its destination. Nearly 200 nations have assembled here this week. A declaration that for all the challenges we face, the growing threat of climate change could define the contours of this century more dramatically than any other. And what should give us hope? That this is a turning point. That this is the moment we finally determined we would save our planet is the fact that our nations share a sense of urgency about this challenge and a growing realization that it is within our power to do something about it. Our understanding of the ways human beings disrupt the climate advances by the day. 14 of the 15 warmest years on record have occurred since the year 2000. And 2015 is on pace to be the warmest year of all. The Paris talks are revolutionary on one hand because nearly 200 countries have recognized publicly that lowering carbon emissions to curb climate change is important. But what happens now? The diplomats have to convince their governing bodies of their home nations to follow this pledge. What we have to do now is, as citizens, keep the pressure on our leaders. Keep this in the news. While failing to meet the actual goals aren't punishable, these leaders will have to show up in public transparently and say why they didn't meet those goals every five years. In the end, most are seeing this as the first step of a long, hard road, but a road that will have our children and descendants breathing easier. You're listening to episode number 93 of The Extra Environmentalist. You were just listening to Kevin Anderson being interviewed by our correspondent in the field, Mark Dixon. Let's jump right back in to our conversation with Mark.
so Mark, you were interviewing Kevin Anderson, and he was referring to temperature targets of 2 degrees, 1.5 C, above pre-industrial level warming. These long-term warming targets have really framed the discussion around climate change in recent years, and they've become the focus of the policy discussions. And they were a key point of the COP21 meeting in Paris, where one of the ambitious things that came out of the meeting is this broader goal of aiming for not just two degrees of warming by the end of the century, but one and a half degrees of warming, which is even more ambitious. So how are these temperature targets used in the discussions and what do they really mean? When you were talking to people there, scientists, citizen activists, and negotiators, and so on, what do the targets mean to them? Yeah, yeah. So I think that 1.5 degrees C emerged as kind of a surprisingly strong stretch goal in the language of the COP21 Paris Agreement. I attended a precursor event, the World Summit Climate and Territories in Lyon, France, in the summer before COP21. And there it seemed like most of the conversation was around two degrees C. They even had a big animation on the back of the of the lecture space that sort of was flying two degrees C all across the wall and all these things. And so you could kind of get a sense that even in the framing of the issue, people were mostly focused on two C. And then at the beginning of COP21, there were a few little protests. It seemed like, you know, small grassroots groups and, and some, I guess, there were some pretty big grassroots groups, but the protests that I saw for 1.5C was pretty tiny. There were a bunch of cameras around, but when I say a bunch, maybe like 10 or 15, and that's in a space that holds some 40,000 people. And maybe there were 15 or 20 protesters kind of saying their piece about, we gotta stay below 1.5C because there are already a lot of nations that are suffering dire consequences from the current warming, let alone 1.5 C, let alone 2 C, let alone 2.7 C, let alone 3.5 C, <laughs> let alone business as usual. You know, like people are already in trouble now and agreeing to anything above 1.5 C is kind of like agreeing to your own death sentence. Like who would even agree to that? So there was a kind of a coalition of, of vulnerable nations that got together to say, hey, we want the conversation to be around 1.5 C. And it started as a pretty broad coalition of nations, but it seemed to gain momentum partway through COP21 when the United States envoy Todd Stern kind of gave a an indication that they would be willing to see some language around 1.5 C in the Paris Agreement. And that was a shocker for me. I wrote it big in my notes that they were willing to see some language around 1.5 C. That does not mean that they were willing to commit to it. And that is not what they did. But there was language around 1.5 C. And actually, the language was so strong that by the end of COP21, that day that I found Kevin Anderson and was able to interview him, the language was was strong enough to cause these sort of impromptu events around 1.5 C, where throngs of press, not just like 15, 20 cameras, but like whole press rooms packed to the gills and with overflow, people funneling out into the halls with access blocked by police just for safety reasons. You couldn't get in because it was so packed because everybody wanted to see, the whole press corps wanted to hear and see what 1.5C meant to the global economic and scientific infrastructure. 
you know, before COP21, I could barely find a good article that really went into detail about how you could even accomplish 1.5C. And so by the end of COP21, when this language appeared in the near final draft text, people didn't even have a lot of good scientific information to draw from about how to reach it. And so you had a bunch of scientists on stage who became the sudden rock stars of COP21, kind of expounding on, you know, what 1.5C meant. Could we achieve it? Yeah, so basically with the business as usual scenarios, they typically lead to between four and six degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels. And so when the goal is two degrees, it's quite a bit of effort to go from, you know, four or six degrees to two. But then now the target is shifted even lower, potentially to 1.5 degrees. So there just hasn't been as much research on it, right? Yeah. And that was one of the major outcomes of COP21 because of the language in this relatively non-binding agreement. Suddenly it triggered, I think, a, a jumpstart of funding and of attention to, well, how in the world can we even get our heads around 1.5C? We need to do more research. And so I think we're going to see a lot more research emerge around how we approach 1.5C. And I think we're just going to see a lot more attention paid to that. The language was even strong enough that some headlines I saw said, COP21 agreement targets 1.5C. And they were targeting two in the agreement. It was pretty clear. They're trying to get well below 2C with efforts to achieve 1.5C was roughly the language. And and that was enough, though, to create press headlines around focused on 1.5C. And that was a coup. That was a huge transformative win for the, the climate conversation. Now, that said, and as Kevin Anderson talks about, 1.5C is really, really profoundly hard. We run up against physics and basically a start date that's way too late. You know, it's like, yeah, we can run a four minute mile, but not if we start you know, two minutes in. (laughs) And uh, that's kind of what the COP21 agreement is pointing to. It's like, we're going to try to get a two minute mile. You know, we're going to make efforts to achieve a two minute mile and try to stay well below four minutes for the mile. And you can talk about that all day long, but without some major breakthroughs, saying it doesn't mean that, that it's actually going to accomplish the goal. Yeah. And so essentially, part of the difficulty of these large meetings and the entire conversation around climate change is there's so many acronyms, there's so many big organizations, and there's so many numbers that it's easy to get lost in all the technical details if you're not a total wonk about it like I am, or you know maybe you are and other people, right? Yeah, because trying. Yeah. We, we hear you know UNFCC and Conference of Parties and Two Degrees, and we know what all that kind of conceptually means, but it's really hard to get that across. And so from your perspective, what does two degrees Celsius warming above pre-industrial levels mean? To me, 2C above pre-industrial levels means that basically we go into the land of tipping points where the warming temperatures lead to things like ice caps melting and, and permafrost melting that releases more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that then makes the planet even hotter. So 2C to me means tipping points that make it even hotter. That leads to runaway climate change. To me, actually, 2C is just a recipe for disaster. I mean, I think we're already struggling with massive, crazy weather and years worth of rain in 24 hours happening over and over and over again all around the world. (laughs) And uh, that's just at sort of, you know, between 1 and 1.5C above pre-industrial levels. What does it mean to be at 2C or 2.7 or 3 or 4 or 5? I mean, 
I think we can just barely comprehend what that means. It means fires, it means flooding, and, and those things will affect food availability and water availability. And food and water availability changes leads to military conflict and tensions, economic strife. I think it leads to wars and refugees, and wars and refugees lead to Brexit and Trump. <laughs> so I think I, I see a, a feedback loop of two degrees leading to to things that we don't want collectively and are worth avoiding at almost any cost. And, you know, the trouble is that we still have our livelihoods coupled to intense burning of fossil fuels. And so you can't just rip out the fossil fuels from the economy without causing a lot of damage to people's lives anyway. And so it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where if you cut the fossil fuels out right away, you create strife. And if you don't cut fossil fuels out right away, you also create strife. So we really need to get smart about moving very quickly, but in deeply transformative ways. We can't move in a shallow way quickly. We have to move deeply and quickly. And those are two things that I haven't seen a lot of examples of in our in our history. I'm actually kind of curious to go hunt for examples we could pull out of the history books that lead to deep, quick, transformative change. And so Kevin Anderson is really good at highlighting that these temperature targets are really proxies for damages, right? Because this is yeah. like an average global warming temperature. But the problem with that is it's kind of the issue with averages where some places may have very little change, but other places may have extreme changes that are truly catastrophic because the global climate is a very complex system. And so this two degree threshold is really where we start entering into the Pandora's box world of like, wow, things could get truly crazy if we go above that. And so that's part of the reason why it's been adopted as the goal. But what does it mean to go from where we're at now to two degrees. What's the conversation at these meetings around what we need to do to get to two? And then after we talk about that, we'll talk about what is said that needs to be done to get to 1.5. Yeah, as far as I could tell, the discussion around what we need to do to stay below two degrees C is cut our emissions pretty fast and pull a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere faster than we ever have and faster than we might ever be able to. <laughs> so that's kind of what it looks like to me. And that gives us sort of a very often you hear numbers around a 66% chance of staying below 2C. In fact, most of the studies that I was able to dig up prior to COP21 kind of look at 66% chance. And I like to think about, you know, it, would you ride on an airplane that had a 66% chance of, of flying to its destination? Or would you rather choose one that could fly with a 99% chance or a 99.999% chance. I certainly wouldn't want to put my kid, if I did have a kid, or myself or or all of civilization for that matter, on a 66% airplane. But it seems like that's what most of the studies do. And any studies I found that kind of had a, a lower temperature, like 1.5C above pre-industrial levels, seem to just change the percentage chance from 66 to 50%. So that was really disappointing for me to realize that you have to suck a whole lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere to hit this two degrees C limit. In fact, some of the research that I was looking at pointed to the notion that we had already baked in long-term climate change above two degrees C above pre-industrial levels. Just with the current emissions, I mean, with the current CO2 and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere today, 
is enough to take us up past two degrees C. There's a lot of ifs in that statement or in the assumptions around that, but I would not be surprised at all if, if there was a study that came out that said exactly that with a lot fewer assumptions. There's also a big question of what is the time frame? And you know, a lot of the studies end at 2100. And so they say, well, we avoided two degrees C by 2100, but did they stabilize it below 2C? Or do they just stave off 2C until 2200 or 2300, and then it just keeps going up? Those are important questions to consider, because the other thing that they do to get a little more wiggle room is they consider, and they're considering this now, is sort of, well, how much above 2C can we go and still bring it back down below 2C in the long run? Yeah, and these are called overshoot pathways, where essentially we release too many greenhouse gas emissions globally. We go above 2 degrees Celsius, and then thanks to carbon reduction technologies and carbon capture sequestration and so on, we have the potential to actually go back below 2 degrees C later. Right. Exactly. And it's kind of like just negotiating with your professor. Your paper is late already and you go into their office and you say, well, what can I do to not get an F? You know, and you try to turn your paper in late or maybe you turn it in half done or you can you get your brother to write it for you and turn it in for you or, you know, just we're just kind of trying to negotiate with Mother Nature and with physics. And it's kind of hilarious if it wasn't so tragic. If you assess all the different ways we're trying to wiggle out of just having to cut our emissions, <laughs> I find it kind of hilarious, but it's also tragic and catastrophic and more so for people who are in much more dire circumstances than I am right away. You know, people are losing their homelands to floodwaters. People are losing their houses. People are losing their food, their livelihood, their farms, their their water supplies. They're becoming refugees en masse. And, you know, we ain't seen nothing yet in refugees you know, we've already got probably one or two to three meters of sea level rise built in with current emissions and no going back from that. And now we're just negotiating how much more than three meters we might be looking at. And, you know, go to New York and take a yardstick or a meter stick and see how much room you have to to have sea level rise. And the world is a very different place when we have sea level rise between one and three meters. Yeah. And so essentially, then how do we get to 1.5 degrees C? Yeah. Now that the meeting was back in December and we're recording in June, there's been more work on thinking about 1.5 degrees C. You've had a chance to read more on it. I have as well. What does it mean to get to 1.5 degrees C, given the state of the scientific understanding today? <laughs> Change the percentage likelihood. <laughs> 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 that's that seems to be what it means. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of where to even start the conversation, because if you don't get to a broad agreement around how to calculate what can and can't be emitted over what time frame, then everybody's going to come up with a different answer and it's probably going to be wildly insufficient. But we need to figure out what is fair for what nations to emit over what time frame. We need to figure out what emissions over what time frame give us what percentage of probability of staying below 1.5 C and what is acceptable to us collectively. So we have to get some kind of collective assessment or broad agreement politically about how much CO2 can we emit and also about how much CO2 do we need to remove from the atmosphere and over what time frame. And the prospect of all of it since the Industrial Revolution and immediately is, I think, the best starting point. <laughs> but 
anything less than that, then the planet will warm and there will be consequences. And then, then we have to figure out who bears the brunt of those consequences and how do we compensate them, if at all, for the consequences of burning of fossil fuels around the world by people who are not suffering those consequences as dearly. And that basically gets into reparations and fairness and all sorts of other things. So the one project that I saw that captured my attention the most with respect to how do we get to 1.5 C is a project that's spearheaded by Paul Hawken called Drawdown Project. And I just saw a lecture of his about it. And basically the gist of it was that he couldn't give a lot of details yet because they're working on modeling and figuring out all the data and the science around basically a collection of about a hundred different projects that actively work to get CO2 out of the atmosphere and reduce our climate impact on a global level with solutions that he claims are sort of win, 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 win solutions, different from say capturing CO2 emissions from fossil fuel emissions, which is sort of like some people suffer from the pollution, from the emissions, but then you can ultimately extract them. That's not a win, win, win. That's sort of like a win, lose. But he's saying that his solutions that he's looking at are win, 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 wins that will be stitched together in a report that claims to be able to find a pathway to a stable climate. And I hope that they can do it. He seemed optimistic when I last heard him talk, but I think it's a daunting pathway that we need to navigate and the research isn't in yet. And so he's working on it. Other scientists are working on it. We need to have the data around what we need to do and how we need to do it. And then we need to create fertile ground for solutions to emerge around the world from all 7 billion minds that have the potential to be concerned about climate change. We need everybody thinking about how to solve it. And we need to make our political infrastructure, our social and cultural infrastructure suitable to rapid implementation of solutions and to supporting those over the long term. And when I talk about stuff like, you know, I say those words, but what I really mean is like updating the code of a city or of a nation for buildings. Right now, it's hard to make fast changes in building code. When you build a building, you have rules that you have to obey. And and a lot of those rules make it really hard to make changes to our emissions as fast as we need to. Same goes for farming practices. Legal infrastructure around food is daunting when you try to layer on top of struggling farmers, oh, zero carbon right away. It's just really, really hard work. And we need to create a more fertile foundation and some governmental understanding of a quick transition. And, and I would even advocate for a sort of wartime scale transition to make these possibilities into reality. Since we don't know exactly how we're going to get there, we have to create the conditions suitable to finding a way to get there. So all of the ways that these temperature targets are considered and illustrated are with models that anticipate changes in technology and pathways that we could achieve two degrees of warming or one and a half degrees of warming. And so generally, the lower the century-long warming target is, the more carbon capture sequestration is generally deployed. And so especially the 1.5C targets, there was a recent paper in Nature Climate Change, which I'll link to in the show notes, where it's talking about the best available science on 1.5C policies. And the general takeaway is that truly massive amounts of carbon capture sequestration need to be deployed to, say, take 
coal power plants and capture the carbon when it's burned and then pump it underground into reservoirs. And what this paper that we'll link to is questioning is whether these technologies are really capable of doing it or whether they're even politically palatable, given the amount of social disruption that would be required to do it on this grand scale. In fact, some of the pathways demonstrate the amount of carbon emissions that we're releasing today, all sequestered with carbon capture sequestration technology by the end of the century. I mean, it's a truly massive scale. We're talking about taking (laughs) today's carbon capture sequestration technology and scaling it up several orders of magnitude of which you know anything is possible on a spreadsheet but seeing it actually happen with the physical infrastructure that would be required to do it is another thing and so were there any thoughts at the meeting about the state of say carbon capture sequestration technologies or other ways that can remove carbon from the atmosphere or i think they're called carbon reduction technologies basically yeah you know, I didn't see a lot of conversation about how we're actually going to do it. The main thing I saw was just BECCS, B-E-C-C-S, Bioenergy Carbon Capture and Sequestration, referenced often in a lot of the IPCC reports. And that's just sort of like a checkbox. Oh, yeah, BECCS. That's how we get CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that's how we make our numbers. BECCS, 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 BECCS. And the Drawdown Project. And then also there was, a, I think, a National Academy of Science paper published that summarized a lot of the ways you can sequester carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And um, I think there was also a book by Tim Flannery that kind of goes into some of the possibilities around carbon capture and sequestration. Basically just have a placeholder for carbon capture and sequestration goes here in reports that, you know, where the numbers just gradually shift as the date horizons change and the numbers become more dire. I really didn't see a lot of conversation at COP21 around those solutions. Even the drawdown project I encountered at an event outside of COP21 at like a little side concert for some activists, it was not at the primary COP21 event. They may have had a booth, but if they did, I didn't see it. So I want to talk about the human angle of being at these meetings and what the culture is really like. And you recorded interviews with so many different people, and we're going to jump into those now. Defending itself! We are nature! Defending itself! We as a group of youth are calling for zero emissions by 2050, which is in line with a big announcement that happened on Monday from the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is the world's most vulnerable countries to climate change. They took this incredibly courageous step to say, we are going to lead the world and get full decarbonization by 2050, which is, of course, for us young people, The difference between 2050 and 2100 is stark. We'll be alive in 2050, we will not in 2100. And so to guarantee a safe future for all of us, we've got a lot of young people from the US working in solidarity with young people from the Nepal, from Costa Rica, from the Philippines, from the Marshall Islands, who were all speaking just now on an action on the inside to talk about the impacts on their countries and their futures and their homes. Well, if you take uh, climate change, uh, it is now known that and recognized that women are the first impacted by climate change. Why? Because they are among the poorest people and poorest people tend to depend more on ecosystems. So when ecosystems are degraded by climate change, then the women are most impacted. But the second reason is also because women are responsible 
for feeding their families, for getting the water, for burning the wood to heat the food and so on. And also there, if the ecosystem in which they live is degraded by uh, climate change, then they have a lot of difficulties ensuring their role in the family. And so they are directly impacted. But also, what is important to consider is because climate change is already in place, in many countries, in many territories, women have already put in place some strategies to adapt to climate change. And these are, most of the time, very simple, very affordable and accessible solutions. And these solutions to climate change need to be promoted. Today, when we talk about solutions for climate change, people tend to think in very high scale, very uh, sophisticated technologies that are extremely expensive and that can sometimes also be risky for your health or for the environment. What we promote as a women and gender constituency and also as WECF, because we've been implementing these solutions on the ground, are decentralized, affordable, accessible solutions that create a benefit immediately to the people and to the poorest people. Because they are decentralized, they are immediately accessible to women and to the poorest people. I think the most important when we talk about climate, of course it is important to talk about technical issues, how to reduce emissions, but it is now even more fundamental that we think about human issues because the climate change is threatening so many lives that we really have to think about how our climate policies take into account the rights and the lives of the people. And as also President Holland put it, one thing that we are behind, we need to be very ambitious. But be very ambitious doesn't necessarily mean supporting very high-tech, very big projects. It also means multiplying, counting on the multiplier effect of small-scale solutions that directly address the need of people on the ground and that can also, if they are well multiplied, have as much efficiency in terms of CO2 emission reductions as other big high-tech projects, of which we don't always see the risks and the bad consequences that are also linked to it. Some negotiators are not promoters of human rights. If you think of China, for example, you've never heard the word human rights in the mouth of a Chinese head of state. So it's also a political issue. And also if you look at states from the Middle East, they are not for gender equality. They talk sometimes about gender sensitivity or gender balance, but never gender equality because they don't believe in gender equality, just as simple as that at the moment. So that is what makes the whole negotiation of this agreement really difficult. But we're pushing forward and making many efforts. And if we had more women, I think, at the key decision-making level and at the power level, we would certainly have more advocates of gender equality and human rights. So we really expect that the people here at the summit will understand that combating climate change does not necessarily uh, mean that development, also economical development, is going to be restrained. Because there are a lot of alternative solutions. There is a whole environmental and social transition that can be made without any 
necessarily loss of employment, it can be a transfer of employment from one sector to another. So by working together, putting coalitions and carrying exactly the same wording and the same positions, we become stronger. So we get united and we become stronger. For example, women work a lot with youth, indigenous peoples, but also with trade unions and the NGOs. And so this positive thinking, that's what really we need for the COP. We spoke about climate change implications to our respective indigenous Arctic peoples, as well as identifying how we as Inuit or Sami or Inupiaq individuals are working here to create awareness about our realities, celebrate our culture, but also work to influence the outcome of COP21. As some of the panelists had said, including two respondents, which were the premier of Kalathlit Nunat Greenland, we have the lowest emissions in the world, but we pay for climate change very dearly. Our Elders and esteemed hunters have been saying for many, many years that climate change is rampant. It's happening at a very fast pace. And that's because we are very attuned to the land in the changing environment. However, because it is indigenous traditional knowledge, it's not necessarily deemed legitimate by the international community, by research and policymakers, as well as by governments who oversee or are part of a colonial relationship with us as indigenous peoples. As Inuit, we are keepers of Arctic sovereignty and the international community has much to learn about our experience. And so here today, creating awareness, as well as hoping to impact how the text of the legally binding document of COP21 is reflective of what I've identified as priorities of indigenous peoples, but will also benefit the international community into the future. I've watched indigenous people, in, particularly in Canada, have played an integral role in blockading the implementation of fossil fuel projects all around the, you know, in the whole Arctic area and, and south of that. And I wonder if you've played any role in that and, and or if you have any insights into why does the world have to rely on indigenous people to make those blockades instead of taking it on themselves? I think that the reason why that happens is because people, the international community, industry aren't necessarily aware or feel close enough to it to be able to make decisions based on our information and our realities. It's a place on a map, there's a resource or there's activity that can be done that can have really positive benefits in the sense of employment or as a revenue source. However, us being keepers of the land us having a direct connection to the land which ensures our survival as a people essentially survival of our culture language ways of knowing and ways of living are directly tied to those realities that's why it's important when we talk about research when we talk about free prior informed consent when we talk about all parties who are privy to such things as land claims agreements whereby indigenous populations have agreements on how decisions are being made over the lands in which we inhabit. That dialogue is really crucial. The awareness is crucial and unfortunately yes when something negative happens that affects a people that's when they have to defend it and that's been the case for indigenous populations around the world. We've been successful many times and many times we haven't and so uh, as Inuit in, in Canada we're pleased to have 
ways in which to monitor and implement the land claims agreements, whether that's through co-management agreements and some of the panelists were talking about quotas that we have set to ensure that we ourselves are adapting to the realities of climate change while maintaining a respect for our culture and traditional practices, but we could still thrive off of the land and the animals in which we eat to sustain us and also clothe us because we use all elements of what we harvest. We have been using and occupying the Arctic as Inuit for thousands and thousands of years. Based on a relationship and knowledge of the land, we've been able to adapt and survive in a very vicious climate, as some could say. For example, I left Iqaluit to come here, where it's, what? It's 50 degrees outside today, Fahrenheit. Yes, well, in Celsius, it was minus 45 degrees Celsius in Iqaluit with the wind chill. And so... Um, That's where you peop- came from. Yes, yeah. and people are often like, why would you put yourself through that? Why do you live there? Well, we choose to live there. We have been living there. We depend on a healthy environment to thrive as a people. We eat the food in which the environment around us provides. And so us being caretakers of the environment, we expect the global community to do the same because as indigenous peoples, we have the right for our social, political, and economic way of life that's reflective of our culture. And so our Inuit language, the practices of which we do in terms of hunting, harvesting, myself as a seamstress, learning how to hunt myself because it's something that I enjoy doing to feed my family. Thereafter, using the skin to create something like the kamiks I'm wearing right now, sealskin kamiks. One of the hashtags that I use to create awareness about our realities and relationship with the land that people might not understand is hunt seal, eat seal, wear seal. It's 360. It's a renewable resource that we have used and thrived off of since time immemorial, and we continue to wish to do that. We as a people love our homeland and wish to continue to live there healthily. We have the right to. And so we're asking the international community to meet us. We're asking researchers to deem our traditional knowledge as valid and use it because we are partners with our global community members to ensure that we're able to survive and continue to for many generations to come. That's the Inuk lens. That's how we think and that's how we we are. And I would like to just say as an Inuk youth that we're in this together. It's all about solidarity. And ultimately, I believe the global community can win if we do this this way. It's not just the indigenous peoples that would, it would be the entire world. We have a situation where we can leave this COP with momentum behind the climate movement, with us having the broadest coalition that has ever existed, where religious leaders from His Holiness the Pope to the Dalai Lama to Muslim leaders and others are on board pushing for climate justice, where the trade union movement is pushing the mantra of There are no jobs on a dead planet and therefore we need a just transition to a clean, green economy. And with the broad spectrum of social movements and civil society organizations and NGOs all united to push forward. There's been a lot of language placed around this 1.5. You know, it seems like two is the number, but then 1.5 is the stretch goal. What's your understanding or your interpretation of the special language they have around 1.5? Well, basically, what's clear is that 1.5 is the safe limit. That's been one of the qualified victories of the SCOP. And we are not going to 
pull back from it. And the only way we will get 1.5 is if we push for 100% renewable energy for all by no later than 2050. So if we care about people in small island states, in these developed countries, those that live along our coastal uh, towns and cities, we have no option but to actually ensure that 1.5 is what we aim for. Because the slogan that people are shouting is 1.5 to stay alive. And alternatively, people are saying 1.5 and we might survive. We, women and gender constituency, really promote the 1.5 target. We had an action yesterday for the 1.5 and we think 1.5 is really the upper limit we should target because at two degrees we already see dramatic climate catastrophes coming and we already see so many territories, uh, small islands, that are going to disappear. And for women, they are going to be the most hit. The last typhoon in the Philippines, there were hundreds of thousands of dead people and 80% of these were women. What the science tells us is in line with 1.5 degrees C. And so we were just singing on our way here and that was our chance, was 1.5 degrees C. But the world has already seen one degree C of warming and we've already seen catastrophic impacts. So one is too much, 1.1 is too much. 1.5 is really our last chance and so that's our demand. It is true, if the INDCs are implemented fully and there's additional ambition that lowers emissions after 2030, then we expect warming by 2100 will be 3.5 degrees C, that's 6.3 Fahrenheit. That's a degree lower than doing nothing, but it's nowhere near the 2 degree target. But no nation has yet pledged to do that. We all hope that that will happen, but it has not yet been adopted and the policies to encourage that are not in place. So I just want to hear from you reflecting on all of those perspectives from the, the activists, the, the scientists, the citizens from around the world. What does it feel like to be at one of these big, large meetings? Because you're coming as a person who truly cares about the future of, of Pittsburgh as well as the entire planet. And how do you take something that big with all the pageantry, all the world leaders, and scale it down to something that people in Pittsburgh can really act on? Yeah, it was overwhelming being there. There was so much happening, so many tracks of action, and probably most of which I had no access to, even though I was credentialed press inside of the COP21 arena. You know, there were political tracks, there were activist tracks, there were NGO tracks, you know, a bazillion booths of people just all running around and talking, people trying to have press conferences, trying to influence the dialogue and the negotiations indirectly. And then sometimes some of the NGOs and citizen groups and individuals would actually gain an audience with some of the negotiators in person and try to influence their positions through direct contact. There was so much happening that it was just, it was just overwhelming. And with all the code and the languages, the acronyms and everything, yeah, I could see how it would take years to just figure it out, let alone master it and then come up with solutions. <laughs> yeah. What does it feel like to see all the world leaders in one place like this? Because you were talking about how 150 world leaders and the Pope and so on all getting like two and three minutes to speak. And it is truly amazing to see a concerted, unified effort of highlighting how important climate change is as an issue to focus on. But you got into a little bit of how you felt like there were constraints with the leaders and how, you know, Obama not 
really saying, hey, you can't keep this to two minutes, right? It's too important for that. Yeah. You talked about yeah. that a little bit, but could you go into that a little bit more as you saw the events happening over the week? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I was attending all these events, it seemed like everybody really, really knew very well how severe the situation was. It, it didn't feel like kind of uh, bureaucratic checkboxes. It felt like people were really working their butts off to try to come up with meaningful shift in global approaches to climate change. And at the same time, so little actually resulted from the conference itself. I mean, I, I was constantly reflecting on how is it possible that so many talented, smart, and power-wielding people could all get together for so long and have such a little impact on the net of our global emissions. I was just confounded by that juxtaposition of concentrated power and wealth and lack of action all at the same time with profound and flowing language and words. I mean, the words that are in the agreement, if you don't understand the nuance around them, the technicalities, there's some beautiful language in there that's sort of high language that calls to our greatest ambitions as human beings. And yet, when you really look at, well, how much did CO2 drop in terms of emissions after the event versus before the event? I don't know if we can measure that easily, but probably not a lot. And how much was climate change Googled? I think I looked for how much it was Googled during the event, and it was less than half of like hoverboards. <laughs> Then hoverboards was like half of Trump and Trump was like half of ISIS. And so it, it was really not a huge surge in, you know, everybody's now Googling climate. And so I was really left with the impression of the powerlessness of people that we regard as powerful. You know, and I think of Obama talking about climate change in flowing language at the beginning and then later on in his tenure as president. And he must really be constrained to show such little progress, even though he's theoretically the most powerful person on earth. And so I really reflected on the constraints of people in positions of power, that they too have profound constraints, just like you and I have constraints. You know, we can't get in a press conference and announce to the world any one thing, but he can do that, but he can't just announce any old thing. <laughs> there are consequences to his actions as well, and we all just have these constraints. So then it becomes a question of, well, then how do we gain a deeper and compassionate understanding of the constraints that we all work with, and then again, build a fertile platform for real meaningful action, understanding that we can't just pull a magic bell or wave a magic wand and make things just happen overnight. So it was really frustrating and quite emotional to be there, knowing how, how important this event was and feeling helpless at the same time. So... The, the last piece we wanted to talk about regarding the Paris Agreement is really, what does it mean? What did it mean to the people who were there at the meeting? And then now that we can look back on it, what are kind of the optimistic and pessimistic takes on it? You know, did it really do anything or what has it set up in the future in terms of action that could happen on reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, well, I, I was almost in tears when the agreement was reached. I was waiting and waiting and waiting because they, they kept coming out with new revisions, you know, each day and each day you'd see a new revision and everybody would line up and count the words of this and that and and figure out all the stats and specifications and language changes and 
And so you'd see a flurry of tweets and little press releases come out with each version. And we weren't even sure if they were going to come up with an agreement. Everybody kept assuring us, oh, yes, there will be an agreement, there will be an agreement. But we had no idea. And so we thought we're coming to the final agreement at the end of, uh, I think it was on Saturday after the official end date of Friday. And I went to as close to the sort of proceeding hall as I could with my pass, which was basically right outside this big plenary hall. And I sat there and waited with a few colleagues, one of whom I knew and one of whom I didn't know. And we just all gathered there and watched the live stream on our phones to see what was happening. And there was a hiccup in the proceedings where all of a sudden it seemed like, uh-oh, there was a problem. And then, you know, everybody was gathered for this thing. But then people started trickling out of the hall. And then they started kind of flooding out of the hall. And I thought, oh, no, it's it's not going to happen. We're not even going to get an agreement, even if it is sort of meaningless in the long run. <laughs> then before you know it, everybody started racing back to the hall. And we looked on the live stream and suddenly they had somehow resolved the issue and proceeded to pass it. It was almost like they passed it just sort of like slipping it under the radar. And I, I think that they did follow formal procedures. And, and so I think it, it, there was no technical problem with how they passed it. But it certainly didn't seem like they said, is it passed? You know, I and the eyes have it. No, it was sort of like, by the power vested in me, it passes. And I'm going to gavel it through. Boom. And then everybody kind of realized, wow, it passed. And then there was this thunderous roar that we heard even before the the live stream caught up with it suddenly a thunderous roar emerged from the hall that we were sitting outside of and and everybody's jumped up on the live stream and started clapping and hugging and kissing cheeks and and everything and and there it was it had indeed passed and i teared up a little bit and then posted a little video onto facebook and one of my friends on Facebook who was watching it was quick to remind me that, you know, this is nothing worth getting emotional about. It's a sham. It's not going to be worth anything. It's not going to actually solve the problem. But there was something about being there that caused me to have an emotional response that somehow in this pressure cooker moment, the world's nations got together and, and were able to agree that this is a huge problem and that we needed to do something about it. And that alone was enough to kind of bring me close to tears. And so looking back now, was your friend right? Is it a sham? Is it meaningless? Or has it set the context for some really positive changes in the future? You know, I still think that the verdict is out. I can't say with confidence one way or another, oh, yeah, this totally transformed the world. I feel like there have been pieces of good news and bad news that happened since the COP agreement was, you know, gaveled through and then later sort of a lot of nations, I think, ratified it or agreed to it, you know, at, at a United Nations ceremony on Earth Day. It's still making its way through the ratification process, I believe. But I'm not convinced that things have been transformed in a post-COP21 era. I do feel like enough people said things that were profound about the need to do something about climate change that they will have a difficult time wiggling out of those statements for the foreseeable future. So I think that if we hold our politicians to statements that they made in the frenzy leading up to COP21, then that will help. Are we locked into a pathway that will solve it? By no means. If anything, and Kevin Anderson kind of, well, my interpretation of what Kevin Anderson has said is that you know everything has to go right from here on out, if we're gonna actually solve this. We have a slim chance of 
succeeding in, in keeping the world below a 1.5 C, well, a below 2 C, and then 1.5 C would be an extraordinary, near impossible accomplishment, but one that I think is is by all means worth striving for. How can we not strive for it, given the consequences of not achieving it? And so even if we don't know how to get there, the more we can lay the fertile ground for figuring out how to get there, the better. So I don't think it's solved. We have a lot of work to do. Most of the work actually needs to happen now that COP21 is sort of a thing of the past. I know they're working towards building out the mechanisms for the ratchet process. And that may be the first real big signal of how well it worked. If the new commitments that come back around 2018 as preliminary INDCs for the next round, if we see a ratcheting that's meaningful, then I think COP21 will have shown that it, it may be able to create a successful outcome. If the ratchet commitments come back in 2018 with minimal change in the net warming, so say it's the range doesn't change much from 2.7 to 3.5 C, then I think that COP21 will have been either a failure or have yet to prove itself. But we don't have a lot of time for COP21 to prove itself as being successful. We really need to show wild success just within the next couple of years. So what really did you learn by going that surprised you? I think for so many people, and myself included, even though we might follow this process and and learn about a, a lot of the technical aspects or see it from a distance, what did you learn by being there that um, you think most people don't really know? I was really surprised by the sincerity of both the politicians and all the political actors and the citizen visitors who were there. You don't just randomly show up at COP21. It seems that you show up at COP21 if you care and if you know a fair amount about the science and want to see a better world for future generations. And I thought it was going to be a much more of a bureaucratic checkbox kind of thing. And I was really surprised by the level of urgency and emotion and sincerity that I felt emerge from all over the place, from everywhere at the event. I think I was also surprised in a disappointed way by how much the public voice was suppressed during COP21 because there was that that horrible Paris shooting that happened just in the in the days leading up to COP21. It's good that that terrorist event did not shut down the proceedings, but it did basically shut down the vast majority of the protest actions that were scheduled to accompany the COP21 event. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of people slated to turn out in the streets in Paris. And the biggest crowd I ever saw was maybe in the 15 to 20,000. So even those were theoretically not going to be legal, but you know the French government allowed certain amounts of people to gather. And in, in the end, even facilitated a safety perimeter around some of the protests, which I thought was great. But I was really hoping to see something more like what we see in New York and Times Square at New Year's, where they just create a secure perimeter and then they check hundreds of thousands of people into a big, grand public event. And it is safe and it is monitored by police and it gives a, an opportunity for a public voice. And I felt the Paris government let the world down by not establishing that kind of approach to protest actions in the wake of the terrorism events. Instead, I feel like they punted on the responsibility to uphold the public voice in what really 
was supposed to be a dance between public protest and government policy. And in the end, it was just a government policy with some PR. And so that was a big surprising disappointment in how it all turned out. So just as we start to wrap up here, I wanted to ask about how your thinking about climate change was better informed or shifted in any way by seeing this process happen. Yeah. In the lead up and being present to the COP21 proceedings, I learned so much about the science of climate change. I thought I knew a lot about the science. I mean, I knew it was an urgent thing, you know, worth rededicating my life to a very kind of activist oriented approach to how I live my life. But I didn't realize how quickly we need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, how quickly we need to reduce our emissions. I had no idea how much my hair actually needed to be on fire around climate change until I did the research and assessed for myself the net result of all the studies that are out there. And we have baked in a pile of trouble for ourselves if we don't get on it fast and start removing CO2 from the atmosphere as soon as possible. And if we don't do that, then I think it's in our best interest or it's sort of the only moral option is to figure out, well, who then can burn the CO2? Where does the CO2 go in the budget? What line item of the budget needs to be changed for me to continue to live my life in a sort of status quo fashion? Until I'm able to answer that question, I don't think that I can consider myself to be sort of a a good person in a way. You know, if I'm not actively working this problem and advocating for solutions that are meaningful to the scale and speed uh, that this challenge is coming on, I don't think that I can consider myself to be a moral good person. And that was a tough nugget to swallow. So it's kind of redoubled my my internal efforts to to address this challenge, both at a personal level, but at a collective organizational level like going and joining groups and helping groups and talking to more than one person at a time about what we need to do and how fast we need to do it. Great. So any last takeaways that we should touch on about your experience seeing the Paris Agreement happen and developed? Yeah. I'd say don't think that your leaders have this thing in the bag. If anything, I feel like COP21 was just all the leaders getting together on the top of a big hill and and hollering out to the rest of the world to go over here, you know, to turn right ahead. And that's sort of the power that they have is just to holler loudly and hope that the world listens while we wait for a techno fix to save the day. And and I think that while it's great that our world leaders are all shouting in unison, I think that it's a scary prospect to be waiting on a techno fix. And I'm certainly not waiting on that or putting my trust in a in a techno fix. I think the solution has to be much bigger, broader, deeper than that. And really wartime mobilization scale or the is the wording that comes to mind for how we need to solve this. Another thing that I have found helpful to imagine the scale of you know how much CO2 is in the atmosphere and how fast we need to get it out, that really invokes the physical scale of the problem is if you think of the decades of work that humans and machines have done to extract CO2, fossil fuels, from the ground and put it in the atmosphere, basically we need to reverse that work 
but not just dig it out and burn it. We need to actually gather up all the molecules, condense them, and sequester them somewhere underground or in the ocean or wherever, kind of like all the gas station and fossil fuel infrastructure running in reverse. So think of every gas station you ever went to, every gas pipeline that was ever pumping gas, every coal mine, every coal train that ever traveled, all of that needs to happen in reverse over the next five to 10 years if we want to hand a future worth living to our children. And that's really, to me, the best indication of the scale of the challenge. We're not gonna be able to do it by switching cars and swapping light bulbs. We're gonna have to make major, major, major infrastructural changes to how we run the world. And unless we understand how big that scale is on a visceral level, we're not gonna respond appropriately. Well, thanks so much, Mark, for going to the meeting and reporting for your own Kickstarter campaign funders and the Extra Environmentalist. It was great to hear your reflections and have all of the fantastic interview material for today's show. My pleasure. And feel free to check out the links probably in the show notes and my blog, marketcop21.wordpress.com for YouTube videos, lots of resources, all the scientific studies that I poured through to figure out what I figured out and and that affected my opinion about the proceedings. All that's online. I've just kind of created a trail of breadcrumbs so that you can literally challenge me if you think that I'm off in the weeds somewhere. We need to solve this. And if I'm wrong somewhere, please let me know. I want to correct the record and let's all get to solving this because that's the world we want to make. Great. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you, Justin. I was shaking hands with the face of death in the Amazon. In a trance, trying to catch my breath, but I couldn't run. When it came around, I was on the ground, blood in my mouth. And I realized the whole damn time I've been missing out. Hey. Oh, we're never gonna go back to the way it was. Oh, we're never gonna go back to the way we And that wraps up our conversation with Mark Dixon about his trip to the Paris COP21 climate conference. I think it's so interesting to look at the culture and the conversation around climate change from the perspective of these large conferences because all of the world's leaders are getting together and they're trying to discuss this thing. But I think what Mark highlighted is the issue is so big about how fossil fuels are an integral part of our economy and how they're probably going to be an integral a part of our economy in the near term and, and the medium term. But yet the more we use them, the more it contributes to future climate change and how the world leaders really felt like their hands were tied in many ways because they only have so much power. I think it's so comforting in many ways to kind of think that world leaders could just decree something that happens and it happens. But in conversations like this of these complex challenges, it highlights how no one can just come in and say, well, here's the solution and we're doing it, right? It takes a really multifaceted, multidimensional approach. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about that these folks that you think are these super experts in the field, 
are trying to make these big decisions, these world changes, have to deal with so many different issues, like political issues, and then even the scientific issues, like you have folks who are disagreeing with you left and right. You have to justify your science. You have to make compromises. And then the eventual results of the policy that gets decided has to go through tons and tons of revisions just to pass and to be acceptable. And then, you know, you have countries like the United States who can decide, I don't think I want to follow that decision. So it's really interesting watching the human side of this play out. Yeah. And as we got into with Kevin Anderson in the interview that Mark had, Kevin was talking about how in the way that the different climate models look at economics, they're really ambitious about what future technologies can do, like capture technology for carbon, carbon capture and sequestration, where they can take all of the carbon out of the atmosphere and trap it and then pump it underground. And that's <laughs> commonly a solution that is projected for keeping climate change below a certain damaging level, the two degree target. So a lot of these big global models are very ambitious about carbon capture sequestration technology. And as Mark was discussing, there's this one and a half degree target to get below two degrees and the damages that would come from two degrees of warming all the pathways use tons of this carbon capture sequestration and especially something called BECS, which is biomass energy carbon capture sequestration, where plants capture the carbon like they do normally, and then they're burned for energy. And then there's capture technology on the combustion, which then pumps all the carbon underground. So there's no net carbon release. And this is a technology that's really never been tested on a commercial scale, but it's like all of the pathways that lead to one and a half degrees use it like for massive amounts, like all of the carbon emissions we have now from all fossil fuels. By year 2100, they show that like Bex, the biomass capture, is capturing all of it and pumping it underground. So it's a tough question, right? Because climate change is a problem that happens on long time scales. How could you sit at the year 1905 and try and predict what people were going to be doing in the year 1975? It's just like an impossible question. How would you have ever known that there'd be a commercial airline industry or cars would happen? All that stuff. Yeah. I don't know about you, Justin, but I, I think that relying on human innovation to solve all of our problems, you know, that is only really the thing that we have to go on right now, it seems in a lot of ways, is that we were just kind of crossing our fingers. We're just kind of sticking our, our heads up into the air and just kind of hoping that our scientists will have enough innovation that will be able to save us from calamity. <laughs> it's kind of amusing just to think that we don't really know how it's going to end and trying to make predictions, like you said, 100 years in the future is kind of futile. And people who say they can do it oftentimes are just looking into a crystal ball. We might as well just bring palm readers to the conference and just set them up in a, a row and just see what happens. You know, maybe they'll have some good outcomes for us. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there is a lot of certainty in the science around the addition of more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and how that increases damages to the planet. Like that's very well established. But the really uncertain parts are like, can biomass energy carbon capture sequestration ever scale up to the level that is capturing all the emissions? Like, it's just, you don't know. And that's where the palm reading stuff comes in because it's whoever makes the most convincing argument for what's going to happen in, you know, 2080 
is the one who who wins the the conversation because uh, from my perspective i just don't think that's possible just like kevin anderson was discussing in in the interview today how pessimistic of you justin how dare you say things like that (laughs) yeah and actually it goes back to our interviews that we did many years ago on techno fixes and limits to technology all the way back i believe that was episode number 37 of our show and we're on 93 now about how it's so easy to do things if you just draw a little black box called technology and, and imagine that, you know, in 50 years, it'll do whatever you want. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of these models of future climate change work in regards to, you know, how to limit the damages. So people like Kevin Anderson are, I think, totally justified in being critical of them. Well, that's the way a lot of our economy works. We kind of just put technology in a box and then we hope we can innovate around it in the future. Oh, yeah water problems oh yeah electricity energy crisis oh yeah climate change yeah we'll, we'll just innovate around all that stuff it's not really a big deal we'll, we'll just innovate later and you know it'll, it'll fix it itself by the time that i need it it's like oh, guys come on really all the low-hanging fruit has been picked let's think rationally here let's let's try to try to figure out some real solutions now so that when the time comes around we're not scrambling it feels like it's common sense to me maybe it's because we've been doing episodes like this for the last four or five years and talking to people who have been saying the same things over and over again and you know people that don't live in that world don't often have that perspective so you extra environmentalist listeners out there have a very unique perspective on these kind of talks and you know it's it's pretty unique and you should feel proud of yourself (laughs) yeah definitely if you've listened to all of our backlog you should definitely feel proud of yourself because that's a huge especially if you listen to many listening hours (laughs) um but speaking of innovation and technology the extra environmentalist is plowing headfirst in innovation in the podcasting world by developing our new podcast website so we've been slow at putting out podcasts for the last little bit, but that's because we've been busy on getting regular releases out for the Energy Transition Show, two episodes a month now for a whole year. That's exciting. 24 episodes now of the Energy Transition Show, our first podcast network series, and it's been going extremely well. Actually, we just got a comment in from a listener on the Energy Transition Show just today from Celeste, who said that they were appreciating their show so much, and they've been listening religiously since episode five, and they're about to start their master's in electrical engineering, and it's totally changed their career path by listening to Chris's show. And the host, Chris, is number one on Celeste's list of which celebrity would you like to have dinner with, so... (laughs) <laughs> I think that's pretty exciting. And it's been worth the slowness of extra environmentalist episodes to be able to produce a show and get feedback like that. Well, Chris is definitely on my list of people to have dinner with as well. He's a fantastic <laughs> man. Yeah, totally. Yeah, more of that kind of podcasts that you can completely go crazy about and can maybe change your future career paths are, are coming later this year and into next year as our new site gets up and going. Some other fantastic people are the folks that send in their hard-earned dollars to the Extra Environmentalist as supporters of media that they really love and can get behind. This month, we have some really wonderful people to thank. So special thanks to Lorenzo from California for sending in a fantastic donation. Thank you so much, Lorenzo. Yeah, and speaking of the Energy Transition Show, that's someone else who found us through the Energy Transition Show and was actually a guest on one of Chris's episodes. So that's really cool to have that kind of crossover 
Um, also, huge thanks to Christian from Massachusetts for sending in a donation. We owe you a t-shirt as well as a few other people, and we're going to get those out this fall. That's right. So thanks for your patience. We have t-shirts and stickers available. A donation of over $30 will get you a t-shirt, and a donation of over $15 will get you some stickers. We also want to thank Jason out in British Columbia. Thank you so much, Jason, for your generous donation. Yeah, great to have more people from the Extra Environmentalist West headquarters backyard uh, sending in some donations. We also have a donation from Stacy in Utah. So thanks so much, Stacy. I, I know you've been a great supporter of our show for quite some time, and so it's great to have your donation. Thanks to all of our donors for their lovely donations. We really, really appreciate any dollars that you send in to support the Extra Environmentalist. We know it's been a little bit of a slow season for us, but that's just because we've got more and more great content in the works for you. Be really, really excited about this podcast network that's coming along for us. We finally have made the investment in putting together an amazing website that's going to rock your socks. It's going to be amazing. We're going to bring so much great content to you and to all of your friends and all of your family. So make sure to let them know about The Extra Environmentalist. If you want to hear more of The Extra Environmentalist shows, head over to www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Head over to our Facebook, our Twitter listen on soundcloud or on stitcher radio all great places to hear justin and my voices booming out across the airwaves I've been quite interested in asking audiences as I travel around is in different towns and cities is, is about the environmental question, you know, it's about global warming, climate change. Is that something people here, people here in London, is that something you're concerned about? Do you know? All right, so some quite strong yeses, a few no! no I'm just interested. I'm interested in why some people care and other people couldn't give a shit. Some people, quite happily, they'd fly to the shops, wouldn't they? If EasyJet did a, we'll fly you to the shops deal. Brilliant, I'm in. Yeah. I can bring back more patio heaters. <laughs> so the cat's nice and warm in the garden. <laughs> While their neighbours could be shivering, you know, drinking puddle water, chucking a sausage backwards and forwards, trying to heat it up. Because some people really care, don't they? Some people, every single piece of environmental news mortifies them, like the ice caps are melting, <laughs> sea levels are rising. <laughs> the samba button on a Yamaha organ uses ten times more energy than any other rhythm.
I do care. You know, as much as I used to. I went to America, and when I came back, I thought, what's the fucking point? <laughs> Why did I bother? You do. You, you do. You go there, you go there, you think, this is wasted party time. I mean, they, we have big cars over here. Cars in America are enormous. You know, the average car is like a bungalow with a windscreen. <laughs> On every level, the consumption is so much more extreme than ours. You know, I came I just feel stupid. I'm at home, right? I'm, I'm recycling, washing out Marmite pots. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get all the Marmite out. <laughs> so they don't have to make another one. <laughs> and they're drilling for oil in Alaska. <laughs> mopping out with a seal pup. Like that. <laughs> I just feel stupid. I feel like I've turned up at an earthquake with a dustpan and brush. <laughs> <laughs>